With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Yahoo Sports NBA Podcast, hosted by Chris Mannix. From interviews. Let's bring in John Wall. He's Reggie Miller. Bring in Eric Spolstra. To the latest NBA news. To insights you won't get anywhere else. Rioting is bad. You shouldn't riot. Past episodes of the podcast can be downloaded in the iTunes Store and Google Play. Why wouldn't you go back? Subscribe and leave a rating or comment. Here he is. Speaking of guys putting their foot in the mouth. Chris Mannix. Yes. All right, joining me this week, you can read him in Bleacher Report. Um, he covered the Knicks with the New York Times for a while. You saw it read him in the LA Times before that. He is magnificent on video, as I've often said on social media. He's Howard Beck from uh, Bleacher Report. What's up, Howard? What's going on, Chris? Uh, you know, I, I am magnificent on video in the rare times that I still get to do video. I'm not nearly the video presence that you are, my friend. Is is Bleacher Report trending a different way? Are they uh, pivoting to text? Is we, that what's we, happening? We have pivoted to text. Okay. Um, right. You know, I've, I've pivoted to podcasts. Ah, yes. Um, your favorite thing, Team Stream, is no more. It's oh, been gone for a, for a while now. Thanks for keeping up. I know. Uh, by the way, LA Daily News, not LA Times. But oh, I, sorry. But no, hey, you know, it's fine. I appreciate. I always appreciate the promotion. The Times was, <laughs> was in fact, the bigger paper back then. At this point, it's actually a leaflet, unfortunately. Yeah, that's unfortunate about a lot of newspapers uh, nowadays. All right, so pivoting to text. I like that. And the podcast, the full 48 podcast, every, what day of the week does it come out, Howard? <laughs> um, it, it depends on the, the whims of my guests oh, okay. and, and my own schedule. But, you know, uh, somewhere between the days of Monday and Friday. Oh, okay. <laughs> Monday and Friday. We'll give a, a wide range so people can just keep refreshing over and over again to see, there you if go. It's, uh, see if it's there. All right. A lot I want to get into today. And you know, the Eastern Conference, both series, three games to none. But I, I think these two conference uh, quarter or semifinals are the most interesting right now of the bunch. You've got LeBron, you know, once again, just climbing up into the heads of the Toronto Raptors and putting on a magnificent performance all postseason, really. I mean, he played extremely well 
in the first round against Indiana. Uh, you know, Howard, his numbers, if you just look at by the numbers, his numbers are up 35 points per game. Uh, they're the highest since 2008-2009. He's in his mid-30s here. But is this the best LeBron James that we've ever seen? That's a really interesting question, right? Because we've seen him already do incredible things. We've seen him post massive numbers, and we've seen him win championships. And, of course, we've seen him go to seven straight finals and working on an eighth. Um, it, it, you don't want to be a prisoner of the moment, Chris. But at the same time, we do know that LeBron James has developed, evolved his game over the years. He does more things now. He does things better now. He has a post game now that he didn't have 10 years ago. He, um, his, his fadeaways, I mean, just, just in terms of his, his you know, the, the basics that, you know, that we once kind of credited all the great offensive players of having, right? The Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan model was going to be, doesn't matter where you guard me. I've got this great turnaround fadeaway. I'm going to hit from all these odd angles. LeBron was never that shot maker type necessarily. He could kill you going to the rim. Mm-hmm. I mean, he developed his post-up game, and he he developed a, a pretty reliable, um, uh, just uh, just just jumper over time. But he didn't necessarily have all these other little, you know, reliable go-to moves. And the the number of just fadeaways and tough shots he's been hitting in this postseason, I feel like is a is a different, more advanced version of him. Not that he's never hit them before, just that he hits them more often. There's a little bit more of that, uh, dare I say, Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant kind of game in terms of the kinds of shots he can take and make now. So it's not just the numbers. And by the way, also, some of this is just, you know, the, the you know, necessity of the moment. He, he has less help than he's ever had, um, or at least less help. And you and I have talked about this before. I've been pounding on this theme all season. This is the weakest supporting cast he's had since he left Cleveland the first time in 2010. And all since then, he had either prime years Dwayne Wade, prime years Kyrie Irving. There's nobody like that on this Cavaliers roster. So if his numbers are popping off the the box score in a way that we haven't seen before, in part it's just because he has to. There's no other way. If LeBron isn't scoring every one of those points, putting up every one of those rebounds, every one of those assists, they're already gone. Yeah, and you know you can make a, a reasonable argument when you look at uh, the finals teams LeBron's been on. Um, that the the one from 07, maybe it could score more. I mean, it had a shot maker in Larry Hughes back then on on that team. Um, you know, Kevin Love has had a gr- very good couple of games during this series, but he has been inconsistent for the most part of these playoffs. I mean, he's LeBron's had to do everything. And why I think this is the best playoff version of LeBron James is because when when he goes out and and has a great game, it doesn't guarantee anything. Like he's had to do, he's had to be great and then some in yep. these games. Like if he goes for forty plus, you know, in the Miami years, in, in maybe a different Cleveland year, that would be more than enough because he had Kyrie Irving, because he had Wade and Bosch. Uh, now he goes for 40, 45, and you've got a game like Game Three in the first round where Victor Oladipo's a, a wide open three pointer away from uh, tying uh, that game out, the three or Game Four, one of the two games. Uh, in Cleveland, it, same thing with um, you know the, that game five in that series. You know LeBron needed to make that game-ending shot. He's playing teams that you know sh- he, uh, in different years, different supporting casts. He'd probably roll through some of these teams. And outside of of Toronto and him just owning them, he's had to do much more, I think, with this team than any of the others. He has. Um, listen, Kevin Love, as you point out, has had a couple of really strong games. When you know the time comes, he is, he sometimes still reminds us that there's an all-star caliber player there. You don't know what you're going to get on a given night. Um, but even when Kevin Love is at his best, 
Kevin Love is a guy who plays off everyone else. You're not running an offense through him most of the time, and he's not creating offense for others. He's not breaking down a defense on his own. So that's what I mean when I say that LeBron has less help than he's ever had. It's not that, Le- that Kevin Love doesn't have all-star caliber uh, abilities. It's that he's not consistent with it, and it's that he's not in, in a creator um, around the perimeter and a guy who breaks down a defense. So, um, you know, I thought when they made the trades for Clarkson and Hood and Hill and these guys, it made them deeper and a little bit more flexible and certainly younger I thought that Clarkson might be the wild card. I mean, I, I completely overestimated Jordan Clarkson. Um, I, I thought that Clarkson could be kind of a version, a younger version of J.R. Smith, a guy who has no conscience, but when he gets hot, you just ride him and say, all right, fine. It's, a, it's, you know, it's you know, good J.R. Smith night, bad J.R. Smith night, good Jordan Clarkson night, bad J.R. I thought we would have that kind of dynamic, and Jordan Clarkson can do some things with the ball in his hands. So I thought, you know, not that he could ever be Kyrie Irving or Dwayne Wade, far from it. I just thought he was another one of those wild cards who could do some things with the ball in his hands, and we never did see that. Um, so that, that, again, that is part of all the dynamics that have shifted so much responsibility to LeBron in this postseason. All right, so, you know, with Toronto, uh, you know, last year they get swept out of the playoffs. Uh, there's some talk at the end of the season about uh, changing the core of this team. They eventually wind up bringing everybody back. They changed the bench, and that actually worked out. They changed their system, and that actually worked out. They go into the playoffs as the number one seed, and you know they're about to get swept or poised to get swept or lose in an early series when this podcast comes out up for the second straight uh, year. Uh, you know, it, game one, I, I think that LeBron was in Toronto's head. Game one, I think they just melted down down the stretch and 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 missed some point blank shots and you know played poorly there then game two it just looked like did they didn't have the confidence that they needed to have going into that game and look i stand corrected on this one because you know i, I said to to in a couple of places that i i believed that this toronto team was mentally tougher than the one from years past that this toronto team understood the urgency with which they had to play i mean look this is probably toronto's best chance to get to the nba finals given what Boston, Philadelphia, and Milwaukee are going to look like uh, in the years to come. And, and they get rolled. And, and, and look, I, I admire the fight that they had in Game 3, but uh, you know, this Toronto team is, is proving that, that LeBron James occupies space in their heads. <laughs> you know, it's hard to conclude otherwise, Chris. I, I mean, look, we all probably get a little bit too carried away at times with the psychoanalysis, right? It, it's easy to say when a team is lost to a player, especially a player like LeBron, multiple years, ah, he's in their heads, he's in their heads. When in fact, some of that just has to do with talent, um, just not having enough. But that said, it, it, it's the way teams lose, right? It's the fact that you, when you see players of Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan's caliber struggle that badly, it's not like LeBron is guarding both of them for 48 minutes a game. If you can't make the shots you need to make, if you can't perform at the level or even higher than the level that, that you were playing at in the regular season, it means by definition, you're kind of fading in the moment. And that, uh, that goes to psyche. I think that goes to whether to the, to your ability to perform at the highest pressure moments. And by the way, that's often what separates stars from superstars in the first place. Um, so yeah, I look going in, I, I tr- you know, out of, out of fairness or out of, out of an overabundance of benefit of the doubt, I would say, listen, you know, I, I'm not sure that Toronto's great regular season necessarily means that they're a better playoff team than they ever were before. It just means they had a great regular season, but we got to respect the ways in which they've evolved, the record that they put up. 
I don't think it necessarily made them favorites against the Cavaliers, but I thought it made, met them, made them more solid, at least, um, and have a shot there. And I gave them the benefit of the doubt on the mental aspect. If they were going to lose, I figured it would be just they got outplayed. Mm-hmm. The way that they've looked, just the expression on their faces, Chris. You, I mean, you watch these games and you just see it. Like, Kyle Lowry just looks like, you know, he just saw a ghost. Um, it's, it's, it's just <laughs> their body language kind of speaks to this idea. Again, dangerous to psychoanalyze and try to get in people's heads. It certainly appears like whether it's LeBron or whether it's the moment, combination of things, that they just don't have that ability to raise their game to the level you need to um, at this stage, and especially to beat a guy like LeBron James. And again, in the end, in fairness, the team with the transcendent generational player is often the one that wins playoff series in the NBA. The Raptors have two very, very good players, guys who are perennial all-stars. They are not at LeBron James's level, nor is, you know, most of the human race. It's, you're right about that. It's, um, it's going to be difficult for Toronto to substantively change their core just because the salaries are pretty significant there. Uh, you know, they can make some cosmetic changes, but it, it might be hard to get better by moving one of their key pieces. Does Masai Ujiri have to do something here? I mean, this is yet another year where they fail to live up to expectations. What does he do in his position? Yeah, this is, this is tough. Um, you know, every, every year for the last couple of years, we, <clears throat> we've talked about, you know, is it time to, you know, you know, whether it's trade a guy or let one of them walk, you know, and when Kyle Lowry was in free agency. Um, and, you know, leave, keeping this core together has meant that they have made steady progression. But that steady progression is only in the regular season. Like the postseason, it hasn't made a difference at all. But as soon as we say, well, okay, maybe they've, they've topped out, they've plateaued. The same discussion we used to have about the Clippers before it was finally broken up. Mm-hmm. Um, it, to what end? Bre- break up how? What are they doing next? Um, you know, Kyle Lowry's 32 years old. So even if you wanted to trade Lowry, you know, and say, well, DeRozan's the guy we're going to go forward with. He's, he's younger of the two and he's, he's got, uh, you know, maybe he's the better guy to build around. What are you getting for Kyle Lowry at age 32? Um, yeah. And in a point guard rich league, who you know who who wants to acquire him and give up something of value to get him? He's a really good player, but um, you know they're they're pretty much capped out. Um, Ibaka's up there in in years now uh, as well. They don't really have that modern kind of front line of of you know switchable rim protectors who can also step out and hit threes. I mean Ibaka was that in his prime, and there's still a little bit of that there. Valanciunas is is more of a throwback. Um, they don't have the wing defenders that you need. Uh, there's just there's something else missing. If, put it this way. If you want to beat LeBron James, what you really need is to add one more all-star to the two you've got. But that's not that easy either. And if you decide you're going to break up the core that you have, you know, you may be taking a step back to go forward um, at a time that maybe LeBron's leaving the conference anyway. But, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, are you about to fall behind Boston and Philly? You know, quite likely. Um, you know, it would have been interesting to see if they had played Boston or Philly first, would they have beaten one of those teams? Like, you know, put, a, put aside the LeBron in their head, uh, you know, scenarios for a moment. Would this Toronto team have beaten Boston or Philly? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't know. They've played really well against Boston in Toronto, but like most other teams, um, they've struggled on the road. Uh, I have no feel for Boston anymore, and we'll get into that because they just keep, you know, next man up, and, and here we go. This, you know, here comes Shemi Ojale to give you 35 minutes in a night. Um, but maybe I think they have a better chance of beating Boston or Philly than they did uh, uh, Cleveland. But with the, with the Cavs, I got an email earlier this weekend, uh, over the weekend, I should say, uh, that is already making Boston 
a slight favorite over Cleveland. I don't know if I buy that. Um, you know, the Celtics are, I mean, they've been an incredible story, but they have their own problems with uh, LeBron James and, and his teams. Um, has your, your your mindset on the ceiling for this Cavs team changed over the last week or two as they fought through um, as they fought through Indiana and, and now they're on the brink as we speak of sweeping Toronto? I don't think my feeling about their their ceiling has changed only because I always thought their ceiling was if everything breaks right, if the East does its usual you know disappearing crumbling act, they can make the finals. I thought you know, even in spite of saying that they had this is the weakest supporting cast LeBron has had in a very long time. Um, they have LeBron. So they've always gotten mm-hmm. the benefit of the doubt. I was never, at various points in the season, before the trades Cleveland made, after the trades Cleveland made, um, you know, during any whatever different weird period they went through uh, over the course of the last month and a half of the season, I always thought you had to still give them the benefit of the doubt because of LeBron. Was this the most vulnerable a team that he's been on has been in a long time? Yes. But when you, when when anybody then turns to the next question, like okay, well, who's the favorite to then to come out of the East? It's like, eh, I mean, yeah. Philly was a was fun to kind of jump on the bandwagon with, but we all knew that there was there were issues there in terms of their youth and an experience that you jump from lottery to fifty win team, you don't necessarily make a run to the finals right off the bat. That that's a, would be a very rare uh, occurrence in the NBA. It was hard to be sold on Boston because they had lost Kyrie Irving. That's that's fair, <laughs> you know, and and they have key. Uh, young guys in key spots. So, and, and Toronto, you know, we, we all had, of course, the, the caveats on Toronto. Right. So the ceiling to me for uh, the Cavs was always go to the finals and get smoked by, you know, the Rockets or Warriors. And I feel like that's probably still the case. Support for this podcast, as always, comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. They understand that home plays a big role in your life and family. That's why they created Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. It's simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. It's convenient. Our trusted partners allow you to share your financial information with Rocket Mortgage at the touch of a button. And in addition to getting a real mortgage approval in minutes, you can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you're getting the right solution for you. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Mannix, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Now, about the Celtics and the Sixers. Boston is, you know, I don't know, I don't know what to make of the series. I was convinced that Philadelphia would split the first two games in Boston and win the series in five. I thought talent would win out. And I thought that largely, Howard, because I picked Miami to beat Philadelphia in the first round. I thought Miami's coaching, Miami's physicality, Miami's experience would cause Philadelphia some problems. It didn't, so I pushed everything on the table for Philly. And it turns out it's it's the Celtics and Brad Stevens and their system that's exposing some things with these these young 76ers. So are you more impressed by the Celtics or are you disappointed by Philadelphia? Uh, both, <laughs> I think. Um, you know, like the, the Sixers are so much fun um, and have been so impressive that you can't help but in part be disappointed by the Sixers not being able to rise to the challenge and by Ben Simmons, um, you know, faltering a bit, to say the least. Uh, so there's... On the Sixers' half of it, I thought that once they'd gotten over the hump of 
not just being a playoff team, but being a high, highly seeded playoff team and having the confidence that went with that and knowing that they, they, they earned that, they belonged there. And then getting through that first round series against a Miami team that, to your point, very well coached, incredibly tough, physical, like, th- like those are, you know, those are uh, evolutionary steps that they were making. And so I thought that they were on more solid ground. I thought that they would be up to the challenge of this Celtics team. Um, but so I'm, I am disappointed on, on the Philly side of it. The Boston side of it is it's, it's more of just like a continuum. Like this is the same thing that's been developing ever since they lost Gordon Hayward on opening night, that no matter what happens, it seems like the Celtics just have this, this incredible resiliency, this ability to, you know, uh, you know, keep evolving um, guys stepping up into, into larger roles. And, you know, look, no one could have thought, I'm sure even Danny Ainge didn't think that Jason Tatum could be performing like this at this stage so soon. And, you know, um, you know, same with, you know, Terry Rozier is in his third year, but, but Rozier, nobody anticipated he'd have to play this large of a role and that he would play it to this, uh, to this level. So it's both. I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly impressed by what Boston has done. I am disappointed in Philly. I'm going to give Boston props here because, you know, it, it, they are overmatched at key positions. You know, Ben Simmons should be able to control this game from the point guard position as he did against Miami. Joel Embiid should be able to give you, if you're going to go one-on-one, and look, Aaron Baines is a very good defensive player, but if Boston's going to let Aaron Baines go one-on-one, Embiid should be a consistent 30-35 every single night on a good shooting percentage. That's how good he's supposed to be at this point. But Boston's game plan in the series was remarkably good. And I'm surprised that Miami didn't adopt the same thing where, you know, they're going to stay at home on on Joel Embiid. They're going to let Baines or, or Horford take him one-on-one. They're going to let, uh, you know, Rogier or, or Horford, whoever it is, take Ben Simmons one-on-one. What they're saying in this series is that your three-point shooters are not going to beat us. Now, game three was a little bit more challenging. They made some shots. Redick especially, uh, you know, late in that game. But... I, I thought Boston's, I think Boston's strategy is really sound. And it brings me to the next point about, you know, the coaching advantage here and, and what Brad Stevens has done in this series versus what Brett Brown can do. I mean, we talked a lot after game three about that terrific play call to get Horford open in the paint. Embiid cleared out the anticipation of Brad Stevens there. And, you know, and you go back to game two for Philadelphia where, you know, you have a, a six minute stretch in game two where they don't call a timeout. When Boston whittles a 22-point lead down to five, you have the decision in game two to yank T.J. McConnell out of there when uh, he's playing really well and put Ben Simmons back in when Simmons isn't playing well. So there are a lot of variables in the series. Don't, don't get me wrong, but I think the coaching advantage is glaring in this one. It may be, Chris. It also may simply be that, you know, look, Brett, Brett Brown has done a phenomenal job in getting this team to this point. And I, I think, agree. And I think he deserves every bit of benefit of the doubt and and latitude to keep growing himself into this job because the job has now changed. The job he was hired to do, and he knew it from day one, he didn't know how long the process would last, but he knew when he took the job, when Sam Hankey hired him, that this was a teardown, that this was going to be um, a process, that this was going to take years of, of losing. And he was brought in to be the guy who was going to develop these guys as they went, with no expectations about where it would end up or or when they would get to respectability. They made this massive, massive leap this year, and it threw expectations, I think, to an almost unfair level to the point where, yeah, now we're going to scrutinize Brett Brown's coaching in a playoff series when this is the first—I mean, it's funny to think about this. 
Brett Brown has been part of, of you know, great Spurs teams and everything else. As a head coach, he has never coached in the playoffs until right. now. Yeah. I mean, this is, his, this is his first time. Um, Brad Stevens is a younger coach. Brad Stevens has been in the playoffs a bunch with the Celtics already, with various kinds of teams. Um, that's not to diminish Brad Stevens' acumen. It's not to, um, you know, uh, to, to uh, you know, create um, any excuses any, or anything for, for Brett Brown. Um, it's just to say that you know, we are evaluating Brett Brown in a different framework now than we were before. And this season, wherever it ended up, once they became a playoff team, like pl- playoffs was the goal this year. And then it became, wow, they could be a top seed and, and ho- with home court advantage. They did that. They got to the second round. They have exceeded expectations by, by any measure. Uh, and I think that coaches evolve too. It's something that we don't spend enough time thinking about. We, we, we are used to the idea that players, because they come in young, they evolve as they go, and we allow them time to build on their game, add things, and continue to grow as players. We, we don't do that with coaches. We kind of think of them as, as, as this static uh, entity where it's like, well, that's just who you are. You know, let's, let's give Brett Brown a little room to, to grow into this also because the job he has today with the Sixers is not the same one he had a year or two ago. Yeah, no, I, I agree with, with Brett Brown. I think the mistakes that Brett is making in this series are mistakes he's not likely to make again because he'll learn, like his team's going to learn. Uh, I just think, you know, in this series, you know, for whatever reason, like because of the experience that Brad has, because of uh, maybe the comfort level that some of his guys have with with trusting him, you know, so a lot of these guys, even though they're young, they've been part of the Celtics team for several years. Uh, it's an advantage. It, it's a, it looks like a pretty big advantage uh, in this series. The other part of it is is Ben Simmons and his routine inability or unwillingness, maybe both, to shoot outside of the paint. Now, again, Howard, this was something I thought that that Miami was going to expose in Ben Simmons. It didn't work quite that well, but do you think this series has exposed the the flaws in Simmons' game? You know, it's funny because um, only a week or two ago we were talking about, yeah, maybe it doesn't matter that he doesn't have a jump shot. Look, he can, you know, he can still control a game. He can pick you apart anyway. If he never gets a jump shot, he could still be an amazing player. And now we've, we've flipped around to, uh, maybe he needs the jump shot after all. Um, look, every... Every player needs as many tools in the toolbox as they can get. And even a guy who's basically a 6'10 point guard needs to continue to evolve. And you can, a great coach, especially during a playoff series, especially if you've got the right personnel um, and the time to plan for it, you can scheme against a guy. Um, you can't scheme against LeBron James, but you know you can scheme against a, a, a guy like Ben Simmons who has a major hole in his game uh, with you know as, as far as like shooting goes. Um, but I, I think you put it best, Chris. It's not just that he's not a a good or, or great shooter; it's that he's an unwilling shooter. And you know, even you know, Draymond Green's not a great shooter, but if you leave him open and basically say you know beat us with your jumper. He's going to get all fired up, and he's going to start sticking them to you. Right. And Rajon Rondo does that too. You know, Rondo's not a great shooter. Rondo controls the game without a, a, a reliable jump shot um, at a much you know you know shorter uh, stature than Ben Simmons. Um, so it, it's the unwillingness, the reluctance that I think stands out most to me. But again, Ben Simmons is a virtual rookie. Whatever people want to call him, he's he's a rookie. This is his first year of playing in the NBA. It's just the beginning for him. And, you know, he seems like a pretty dedicated and bright uh, player, uh, person. I, I'm certain he will keep adding to his game. 
And when he gets that jump shot, yeah, he's going to be unguardable. Yeah. And, you know, I, I we had um, Kobe Bryant on the radio show I do with Crown Butler on Sundays. And, you know, Kobe said that, you know, that jump shot of Ben Simmons, you've basically got to scrap it and and start anew. And that's my biggest question with Simmons, because it's not easy for a guy that's had so much success in his young career. That's always been the best player or one of the best players on the floor to be told that there's a part of his game that's broken. I mean, and the guys that do it, you know, generally have success. I mean, Kawhi Leonard, I've said this on this podcast before, is a great example of a guy that showed up to his team, San Antonio, willing to to break his jump shot down and let a guy like Chip England uh, rebuild it from scratch. I think Simmons is going to have to have the same approach because that's a that's a funky looking jump shot, Howard. That's not like a, you know, I think Giannis has pretty good form on his jump shot and he's getting more and more willing to take that jump shot. A guy like Giannis, it's repetition to me. It's 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 keep going along those lines. With Ben Simmons, I don't know who the shooting coach is. Maybe they have the, that person on the Sixers uh, coaching staff, but whoever it is, they're, Simmons is going to have to get with him and trust that person and really get to the bottom of his jump shooting problems. Yeah, or or he works with a skills coach on his own during the summer. I mean, you know, a lot of guys get their own guys that they that they work with. Um, I, I'm sure that he will he will. I mean, why wouldn't he, right? Whether it's, yeah. whether it's through the Sixers and their staff, whether it's uh, one of these independent uh, skills coaches out there. Not, Mar- not Markel Fultz's guy. Not, not <laughs> no, but... <laughs> go, go somewhere different. It's, um, I, it's a problem. I got I to gotta believe that, you know, that will be mission one this summer for Ben Simmons. Um, and we'll see what he comes back with in, in the fall. I mean, the great ones always add to their games, and especially a hole this big in your game when you're, you know, a perimeter player that doesn't have a jump shot. And, and look, that said, yeah, Rajon Rondo's however many years in, he still doesn't have a great jump shot. It, you know, Tony Allen never had a, ju- a, a jumper. You know, some guys are going to be more one-dimensional or, or have limitations built into their game. It doesn't have to be that way. And a guy like Ben Simmons, who I think is just at another level, um, you know he'll he'll get it he'll somebody will will go through those stages with him i'm sure Mm -hmm. kobe's right he probably does have to break it down and start over guess what he's young enough to do that um i'm not i'm not gonna you know say that that this is going to be the the ben simmons that we're going to see for the rest of his career yeah i agree and one of the things about simmons he got you know beat up at the end of that game three for uh taking the shot when he got the offensive rebound i mean everybody's saying should have pulled it out make them follow you all that those are mistakes he's not going to make later on yeah. like those are the mistakes where you make them once and by the like, way right. by the way just not to interrupt this is why we say youth doesn't win in the postseason yes when you're making this statement chris accurately that hey he made this mistake it's not a mistake he'll make again now that it, that's exactly what we mean by experience when we it's this is not just some cliche about oh youth doesn't win and you know it there's a reason you have to. There are certain mistakes that you have to to make. Situations you haven't been in before. Um, possessions mattering more than they do during the regular season. The intensity level being cranked up and having to rise to meet that and to be able to not just perform in the moment but to think in the moment and to make these snap decisions. And yeah, you you with rare exceptions, you do just have to go through the steps. And the Sixers will be better for having gone through this this soon. All right, so the the top rookies in this this past class are Simmons, uh, Jason Tatum, who was going up against, who's playing really well in the series, and Donovan Mitchell uh, out in Utah. Has has this postseason changed your mind at all about you know if you could take one of the three to build your team around, who would it be? Yeah, well, let's just quit, th- throw a quick caveat out on this discussion, which is um, 
the, the rookie of the year race ended on April 20th or whatever when the regular season ended. So anybody yes. no, don't nobody should use this postseason or anything that you and I are about to say to reframe what the rookie of the year vote should have been. That that you know barn door closed a while ago. Regular vote, season award. Right. I, I I took Ben Simmons over Donovan Mitchell, but by a hair yeah. on, on the rookie of the year ballot. So with, did and, I. With, and with Tatum third. Mm-hmm. Um, what the playoffs have shown us is that you know <laughs> Donovan Mitchell might be a better playoff player right now than Simmons. Um, because he does have all these other uh, tools in, in, in his toolbox that that he he has the jumper he has the ability to um, to to score in a variety of ways and to put a team on his back offensively in a different kind of way than Ben Simmons does I mean so to your question you know who is the guy you want to build around I mean man I, I, Simmons looks like he's going to be this this generational kind of talent right because of of the combination of size and skills. And so if we assume that he's eventually developing a jump shot and that he's going to become unguardable, that he's going to be a version of the LeBron type, not to say he's LeBron, folks, just saying another guy who's, you know, very tall, very big, but plays like a point guard and can kill you in a variety of ways and guard a bunch of positions, his versatility is ideal to build around if we assume a jump shot. But Donovan Mitchell, I would be more than happy to be building a team around Donovan. Donovan Mitchell's already one of the best guards in the NBA. Forget yeah. rookies. He's one of the best guards in the NBA. I don't want to do that ranking right now because it'll get us into trouble in a hurry. But um, he's right up there, Chris. Um, he's got, you know, he's got that big-time moment ability where he's, he's, he's scoring in the clutch. Where And not just scoring the clutch, by the way. He had the game uh, last week, what was it, 11 assists, 12 assists, whatever it was. Ricky Rubio's out, and all of a sudden, we're seeing that Donovan Mitchell can be the playmaker as well, that he's not just a scorer. Um, he's been fantastic. Uh, you know, it's the easy answer to say I'd be happy with any of these three of these guys. I'd be happy with any three of these guys, any of these three guys. Ben Simmons is, of course, the one who has the ability to be special at a different level because of the combination of, of size and skills. Yeah, I'm with you there. I'd still take Simmons because of the just all the things you said. Like, he's got that... That, that size and skill, and all he has to do is work hard on that jump shot, and he can take himself to to another level. I, I'm with you on Mitchell, too, being a great player, but to, to talk about Tatum for a minute here, uh, this guy is going to be a, a special scorer. Yeah. Like, he is going to be an unbelievable scorer. You watch him right now, Howard, and he's beating you with the jump shot, with the crossover dribble, uh, going to the rim, using his length. He's got an unreal level of skill. What he doesn't have right now is strength. He has no strength on him. So I'm just sort of trying to imagine him as a guy with, you know, a Simmons-type body or a Dario Saric-type body. I mean, he doesn't get that big, but uh, even like a Durant-type body where, where the strength is an asset for him. Right now, he can't post anybody up. He can't power through anybody. Uh, he's limited in that way, but that's going to change. He's 20 years old. In the next two years, he's going to put muscle on that body and be finishing through people. So I think he's a legitimate 25-plus score uh, point-per-game score in this league, and I think he's going to see a guy like Tatum who isn't a complete player quite yet, but I think you're going to see him complete, uh, compete for scoring titles in years to come. I, I think that's a pretty good bet. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how he evolves on a team that will soon be overloaded with offensive talent. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. Like We're spinning way too far ahead here, but the Celtics are going to have some interesting decisions to make. Yep. You know, When Gordon Hayward's healthy, I was having this, this, this discussion with some NBA executives last week. When Gordon Hayward's healthy next season, Who's going to the bench? Or are you starting all three of Brown, Tatum, and Hayward? And if so, who's playing power forward? Um, and then Kyrie Irving's back in that lineup too. And, you know, what does that spell for Tony or for uh, Terry Rozier um, in his future? Uh, 
there, I mean, there, there's, it's a great problem to have. It's a, it's a wealth of talent, but eventually that wealth of talent does become a problem because of playing time issues, salary cap issues when guys are due extensions. There's, there's going to be um, some, you know, at, at some point they got to figure out who the focal point is. And so to Jason, to, to, the, uh, to the issue of Tatum's long term, or even in the short term, how much of a featured scorer does he get to be when you've got Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward and Jalen Brown and Tatum all out there? Um, again, great problem to have, but they're going to have to sort that out. And, and so will that, in the near term, um, suppress some of Tatum's, you know, at least statistical potential? It might. Somebody's going to have to go uh, to the bench because Hayward's coming back as a starter. Kyrie's coming back as a starter. Yeah. Uh, Rozier goes to the bench. I think that's a, a yeah. given. And look, they're, they're going to have to make a choice on Rozier and Smart, I think. I mean, that's uh, you can't pay both those guys, especially with, with the postseasons that both uh, are having. And, and I would, as much as I like Terry Rozier, I'd probably take Smart because you're going to be able to put lineups on the floor that can score with anybody. I mean, they're going to have you know their version of the death lineup. I mean, think about it. With Hayward, Kyrie, Tatum, Brown... And Al Horford at five, yep. you're going to be small, but you're going to score on everybody out yeah. there. So they're going to, you're going to be able to put up points. What you won't have is a lockdown defender coming off the bench. That's where I would, I would lean towards Smart than I would towards Rozier. But it, it is going to be interesting to see well, next year about uh, whether it's Brown or Tatum, and I, I think it's probably going to be Brown. Um, who goes to the bench and how they react to it? I, I agree with all that, Chris. But there's one other wild card we have not mentioned here, and it's again, it's one that people don't want to consider, but it's kind of out there. Kyrie Irving just coming off knee surgery again. I mean, we don't really know for sure how that's going to turn out either. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that you're, you're choosing between Smart and Rozier, yeah, assuming everybody else is healthy, I, I want Smart and his defense and, and the tenacity that he brings and the, the ability to, to guard multiple positions. But Rozier's been really great as Kyrie's, uh, you know, uh, understudy or, or now his fill-in. Um, what if, you know, what, what if Kyrie Irving's not the same? Yeah, yeah. And then you want Rozier yeah. because he's more the complete point guard. That's probably a decision they'll have to make in, in August when Kyrie starts really getting uh, going through full drills. But uh, it, you said it's good problems to have, but they are problems. And, and you, can't, you can't pay everybody with, uh, with this group. This episode of the Yahoo Sports NBA podcast is brought to you by Full Sail University's Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting. Legendary sportscaster Dan Patrick, you know him from the Dan Patrick Show, Sunday Night Football, the Olympics, and SportsCenter, has teamed up with Full Sail University to offer an accelerated bachelor's degree in sportscasting. Full Sail University combines hands-on learning, immersive projects, and faculty with real-world experiences to prepare students for life in the media industry. And for the Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting, they brought in some of the sports media's best to be a part of this program. Longtime ESPN producer and multi-Emmy winner Gus Ramsey is heading up the program, and sportscasting pros such as Sage Steele, Jay Harris, Bill Simmons, and many more are involved. Students will learn sportscasting inside and out, on camera, behind the camera, podcasting, radio, interviewing, everything in between. At Full Sail University's Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting, you can earn a bachelor's degree in about half the time, as short as 20 months. And you can choose to earn your degree online or on Full Sail's campus in Orlando, Florida. To learn more about Full Sail University's Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting, go to fullsail.edu slash danpatrick. Now, I, Howard, I put this uh, poll on Twitter over the weekend, and, and as typical of the discourse on social media, it created a lot of uh, <laughs> angry responses. And, and I said, I put it out there that, if you were the GM of an expansion franchise, expansion being the operative term here, and you could take your pick of any NBA player or Brad Stevens, who do you take? 
Uh, I'll put that question to you. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a fun exercise. Just, mm-hmm. to th- but I mean, it only takes like 0. 0.3 seconds to say I'm still taking LeBron James. Would, yeah, but would you see? That's the response yes. most people said. But you're an expansion team, Howard. Well, I, 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 I don't care. I mean, Le, even LeBron James at 33 is still the best player in the NBA. Yeah, so I'm an expansion. I'm fine. I'm an expansion team who's going to get one of the greatest players in NBA history, possibly the greatest, possibly. And I'm going to have him for the next, you know, three, four, five years, um, doing what LeBron does, lifting up everybody around him. If the question is, can a single player uh, uh, elevate a team in a way that a, a single coach cannot? Yeah, I, certain players can. Not not every All Star would be better than Brad Stevens necessarily, but but a few players certainly would be. I would take LeBron James. I would take Kevin Durant. I would take Steph Curry. I would take. Um, Anthony Davis. There are guys I would take ahead of any coach, and I think any coach would tell you that they would take those players over themselves, um, not just out of some sense of false modesty, but just because talent wins in this league. And you can have an average coach with phenomenal talent and win 60 games and maybe get to the finals, win a championship even. Um, you can't do vice versa. You can't take the greatest coach and take a uh, an average-ish or only slightly above average lineup and, and win a title. I, look, I, I agree with that, but what it what what your premise there doesn't include is that you know okay you can't get you can't take let's say it's Embiid you can't just pluck Embiid off the Sixers and make him your cornerstone player. But you know over the couple of years you can draft and hope you have a smart GM and all of a sudden you you may not have the best player in the NBA in LeBron or, or Embiid whoever it is, but you will have talent and you will have the coach there that that can move the needle. And for the record, I mean, look, I I lean towards you. I would I, I don't I wouldn't take LeBron because of the expansion part of it because I'm looking sure. five years down the line. Sure. But I would take Embiid in that situation, assuming he's healthy. I would say this though. You know, I talked to I asked Karan Butler that question on Sunday. He said Brad Stevens. I heard from a GM and a former GM, and both of them said Brad Stevens. They saw the Twitter poll, huh. and they both said Brad Stevens. So it's a small sample size. Don't wow. get me wrong, it's small sample size, but. Uh, it, it's it's not as cut and dry, I think, as as, as some people think. No, no, it's 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 it's, and that's why it's a fascinating exercise because it, it's hard. It's a lot harder to quantify what a great coach does for you versus an average coach, or great versus good. Even um, it's hard to quantify when we look at the Celtics, for instance, right now. Is are you know the the reason we had any doubts. Um, about them this season would have been, you know, one, Gordon Hayward obviously injured and then Kyrie right. Irving injured. But a lot of it also was, well, you know, are, what are Jason Tatum and, and Jalen Brown ready to do at this stage, at, you know, at, at this age? Um, can we really count on them to, to uh, you know, play major roles and to shine in the spotlight? And so now the question becomes when, when they're playing at this level in the second round of the playoffs and are on the verge of the conference finals and are probably in the conference finals, is that, de- is that them? Is that coaching? It, you know where and it's obviously the intersection of the two, but it's hard to know how to parse that out. I don't know if there is a way to parse that out, and what Brad Stevens's influence on Tatum and Brown being this good and this reliable this soon is. I think one thing I've learned about you know watching the Celtics coaching staff and how they treat their young players, the importance of empowering them during the regular season. And when I say that, I mean you know let them make mistakes offensively, like defensively. You know. Brad and his staff are they crack a pretty good whip. Like if you make a a bad defensive play, chances are you're you're coming out of the game. But if you miss three shots in a row, and I've seen this all season long, if you're Brown Tatum, you miss three shots in a row, you don't look over at the sideline expecting somebody to come in for you. And and I think that's paid dividends now because these guys are playing with a different level of confidence than they uh 
than they, they would if they were yanked in and out of games as, as, as some coaches do. I mean, look, some coaches don't want to you know, take risks late in games with young players. Boston has done that consistently. Some Sometimes by force, like you have to, you know, Tatum and Brown are, are there. Who's behind them? It's Shemi Ojale and Shane Larkin and, you know, guys you don't necessarily want in in those situations. But I, I think that reason Boston is playing as well as it is right now is a lot to do with how, you know, these young guys have been built over the last year, two years. For sure. And yet, and yet, would they be at this stage, would they have uh, been given all that opportunity and that much rope to work with to work through their mistakes and everything if, in fact, they had the full complement of players, if Gordon Hayward had been there all season, if Kyrie Irving never goes down, and all of a sudden now Brad Stevens might have been leaning more on his veterans and might have had a shorter leash with his younger guys. I mean, that's these are the things that we can't know right. for sure. But, again, not to diminish what he's done, because he did give these guys you know, a, a, a great deal of latitude and responsibility, believed in them. I believe that that's a huge part of coaching. Belief is a huge... Everybody who's ever played for Mike D'Antoni, for instance, whatever people might think of Mike D'Antoni... Mike empowers his players. He always has. He's always been a guy that says, I don't care if you, you know, if you're open, shoot the damn shot. I don't mm-hmm. care if you're a quote unquote shooter or not. And so guys who weren't shooters became good shooters playing for Mike D'Antoni. Um, and because he also obviously, you know, valued a three point shot way ahead of everybody else. And, in, in, you know, those on those, whether it was those Suns teams, whether it was uh, some of his New York teams, he empowered guys to shoot, not just three pointers, but, you know, wherever. If you're open, shoot it. I'm not going to yank you. I'm never going to punish you for taking open shots. So, and those players in, in later years would always talk about how great it was to feel that confidence from the head coach. So that part of Brad Stevens's uh, overall persona is hugely important. And so, you know, look, whether it's that, whether his, his after timeout plays, whether it's um, just his, his general, just incredible tactician mind, he's incredibly valuable for sure. But um, but yeah, it, it, it's interesting that, that there are actually GMs out there who said they would take yeah. him over over a player. Yeah, just again, it was one current, one former who texted me after seeing that poll and, and said they would take Brad. And again, Cron Butler said it, uh, the same thing uh, on Sunday. So I'm sure if you ask you know, 20 others, you're probably going to get different opinions. But uh, all right, let me finish with the Knicks who have made a coaching hire. The Knicks did their due diligence. They interviewed every available coach, it seems, about the job opening. They have settled on David Fisdale, who a couple of years ago was a highly regarded assistant in Miami, did a pretty good job in one year in Memphis before things went off the rails, his relationship with Marcus Saul that ended uh, you know, a month or so into uh, his season. Let me ask you this, your thoughts on Fisdale, and is he the right choice for this Knicks team? So my, my feelings on this are, are not cut and dry at all. Um, I don't know Fisdale um, personally. Um, and so I, and I, and I, you know, I didn't spend any time around Memphis during his time there. So it, it's, it's hard to get a feel. I, I should qualify everything as saying like, and, and by the way, we often don't know with young assistants when they come out, you know, we, we hear great things. Um, you know, players who played for a guy will say, yep, this guy was really key to, to our, our development. Um, he's a great communicator. Uh, he, he really thinks the game well, you can hear all these things, but until a guy's actually in that position, we don't know if they're truly up to it or not. And sometimes they're not up to it until they are, because they have to develop as head coaches. It's a different job than being a highly re- regarded assistant. Fisdale, all that said, checks all the boxes. Everything we know about him, um, personality, communicator, um, the, the, the way he works with players, everything charts out there. But now we have some, some, some caveats or, you know, or concerns there, because yeah, the, the, the most important job in Memphis, of course, would be getting along with your best player, the franchise player, Marcus Gasol, and he lost that battle. 
mm-hmm. I think that that's a, a fair concern to raise and, and wonder about what that might spell for him with you know any number of other players uh, as he progresses through his career. Why did that go south? I don't think we really know for sure or what he learned from it. Um, but the bigger thing, Chris, is this. <laughs> I'm not sure it mattered who the Knicks hired. I mean, you, I'm glad they, that they had a very thorough process. I'm glad they interviewed a bunch of people. Um, I'm glad that they, they you know, didn't just grab the first shiny object the way that the Knicks have over and over and over over the, uh, over the years. Um, I'm glad they didn't do what I call the celebrity hire, where they just, again, that's the shiny object you know, phenomenon, where they just grab whoever they think is going to win the press conference for them. Mm-hmm. I think but we this, know the name of, of that person, but go ahead, yeah, continue. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in this case... Um, I, I also don't know that who coaches them for the next two, three years is going to matter much because at least not to the, to the, to the, le- the win-loss ledger. Um, this team's not ready to do much of anything. Porzingis is going to miss at least half the season, maybe longer. When he's healthy, they still don't have enough around him to really do much damage. So what you need as a coach is going to help keep developing Frank Nielakina, develop their coming lottery pick in June, whoever that player turns out to be, um, but the rest of the responsibility for this team being good again, being respectable, is still in the front office. They just don't have the players. Mm-hmm. Tim Hardaway Jr. is is an okay player who has a massive contract. Um, they've got some older guys like Courtney Lee hanging around. Where's where's the core that you can look at and say this is who the Knicks will be for the next you know three, four, five, six, seven years? You don't have it. And even with Porzingis, there's now you know the concerns of not only the fact that by the way his his game wasn't really developing last year. You know, yeah. story after story was written, breaking down um, the the fact that he's basically a black hole on offense. He's not a passer. He's not a playmaker. If you're going to build around him, that that could be difficult if he's not going to expand his game and, and involve his teammates. Um, and now he's a seven three guy coming off of ACL surgery. So. I, you know, Fisdale, I, look, good hire, I think. I think, you know, if, if, if I had to guess, it feels like he's the right hire. I think he's a good guy, good coach. All this, the signs about him are positive. I think he'll be good for the Knicks. I also think he'll be a good face of the franchise, by the way. You know, they, the front office doesn't want to be out there in front talking all the time, and they don't have a player who necessarily has the standing to do the, the everyday kind of give the, the media the narrative of, of what our team is about. Fisdale's got a, like that that big personality he'll keep you know the notebooks filled and he'll he'll you know uh he's, he's a good soundbite that matters in this market i think it matters in most markets but but this one uh, especially but you know this team's a, a ways away from being respectable again well is is fizdale's bluntness in this market a good thing i mean it's one thing to you know, be blunt in Memphis when most days you're just basically talking to Ron Tillery down there. <laughs> now you're in New York and there's 30, uh, you know, 30 writers, bloggers, uh, videographers all facing you uh, every single night. Now, just to back up for a second, I, I like the hire of Fisdale. I don't know. Look, he, he got the benefit of the doubt in Memphis, right? Like it, when, when that broke up, uh, when that situation went south, pe- people blamed Gasol. They blamed the front office. Very few people blame David Fisdale for it. Um, so he's got to prove that that he's earned you know the the, the respect he was kind of given after the fact. But what worries me is that you know if a guy, one of his guys plays poorly, that Fisk goes out and just napalms him. And, and I've talked <laughs> to people, Howard, in Miami about this. I've talked to people in Memphis about this. And I said like I, my basic question was, you know, can he tone it down a little bit? Can he can he take it down a gear? And you know, for the most part, the the responses I got were he doesn't really have that, that other gear. Like he just, <laughs> he, he just is this guy. Like he just says what's on his mind and, yeah. and that's just why, and, and we love him for it. But 
you know, how many problems does that cause in a market where everything you say gets splashed on a back page, gets brought up to players inside the locker room? Uh, that's going to be, I think his coaching is fine. Uh, I think how he handles the media is going to be a challenge. Maybe, maybe. I, I think that the Knicks' problems, um, look, the Knicks don't like outspokenness in general. As, a, as an organization, Madison Square Garden does not like outspokenness, um, does not necessarily like candor, frankly. They don't, they yeah. don't like... Uh, truth, any of that. Truth, yeah. yeah tr- truth is uh, anathema to them. Overrated, yeah. But that said... Um, they, you know, there has been, we don't need to get into the nitty gritty details of this, but the Knicks over the last year have made a bit of a shift philosophically with the way that they're dealing with the media. And I think, uh, hiring Fisdale maybe also is an indication of an open mind that, listen, we're not going to try to be quite as controlling. And they haven't been, they've been a little bit more open with the media. They've allowed more access. They've eased up a bit. We've seen that before. You know, we had what we called, I, I referred to as glasnost uh, when Donnie Walsh was, was there. It lasted for a couple of years, and then they slammed the door shut, and they went back to the dark ages. Um, right now, it seems as if they are kind of pushing the door open again, trying to ease up, trying to be a little bit more media-friendly and a little more open within certain bounds. It's still the garden. And Fisdale's candor, you know that that's part of his, his demeanor, his personality coming in. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want a coach that's going to every day give the media a very blunt assessment of his team or of a player, then you don't hire him. I think hire him, hiring him indicates that they know that that's part of it. And maybe that'll be a good thing. And maybe it will get them used to the idea that, hey, look, if things are bad, it's okay to just say, hey, you know what? We're not that good yet. We shouldn't be talking about playoffs yet. We got a long ways to go. Stop you know, pumping up false hope. Stop chasing the eighth seed. Stop trying to lead your fans to believe that you're better than you are. And if it's Fizdale who's going to be the one to be, uh, you know, more honest about that, about where they actually are and and the, the uh, steps they still have to take, you know, that should be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're right. It's going to be a few years before we're able to make any kind of evaluation uh, on Fizdale. What The last thing I want to ask you about this subject is... The LeBron James factor, right? You have to go down this rabbit hole just a little bit, just a little bit with David Fisdale, a former assistant in Miami. LeBron likes him. Dwayne Wade likes him. Seems like everybody down in Miami uh, likes him. We know New York has been on LeBron's radar before. Um, For all the reasons you said, Howard, it seems unlikely that they'll reappear on LeBron's radar. A coach doesn't move the needle that much, but do you think it moves the needle at all for LeBron this summer? No. I don't. Yeah, I I I, I, <laughs> I think it's I think it's a, it's a silly uh, it's a silly narrative. I mean it, it's you know I understand it. It's it's logical. It's logical to at least think it. But to think that there's any substance behind it is ludicrous. LeBron's 33, 15 years in, and his next team, whether it's staying with Cleveland, whether it's the Lakers, whether it's the Rockets, whether it's the Sixers, um, you know, uh, whether it's uh, you know. Uh, you know, the the Olympia Milano. Are they still Olympia Milano? There's something else. Could be. Yeah. Whatever the team is in Milan. Um, yeah. He's going somewhere to win. The Knicks are not ready to win. And it's it's as simple as that. They don't And they don't have cap room. Now, can LeBron uh, uh, manufacture his, his path anywhere through sign-in trades or any, any number of other ways? Could the Knicks dump a bunch of... Co- yeah, you can always find a way. The Cavs right. didn't have cap room before they re-signed him in 2014 either. They, they made the room. It's not necessarily about that. It's about what am I coming to play? Who am I coming to play with? And what chances do I have to be a contender for the final three, four, five years, whatever it's going to be of my career? That's, that's the only calculus. You know, where do I want to live and can I win? And 
what what reason do we have to think that the Knicks, with a Porzingis coming off of ACL surgery and nothing else really to hang a hat on, where's the attraction? So Fizdale or no Fizdale, you know, LeBron and Fizdale can be friends for life. And they can send Christmas cards and they can get together for dinner when they're in the same city. That doesn't necessarily mean that LeBron is going to come play for him just because he's coaching the Knicks. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it, it's almost like how Scott Brooks was supposed to move the needle for Kevin Durant a couple of years back. And, <laughs> and that was never something that was on the table. This this is not uh, on the table uh, either. Howard, I appreciate you coming into uh, the studio here. You can check out Howard's stuff on Bleach Report. Follow Howard on Twitter at Howard Beck. Download the full 48 podcasts sometime between Monday and Friday each week, <laughs> and it'll, uh, it'll be terrific. Thanks for joining me, man. Always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks, man. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Howard Beck for joining the show. As always, you can download archived episodes on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, really anywhere you can download podcasts. While you're there, post a comment, leave a rating. You know I appreciate it, and I'll see you next week. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening.